So we're, we're continuing on in this series, Roots. Uh, it's time to grow deeper. And this is week seven or week eight here in this series. And we're covering the next chapter, chapter number four, chapter number four. And before we get to reading scripture, you know, I, I've been a, a pastor for, uh, I believe, this coming January. I'll have been in ministry uh, for 15 years uh, as a pastor in some, uh, in some capacity. And, and I have taken a, a couple of years and, and done some study to become a certified biblical counselor. And one of the things that I have come to realize uh, through not only just ministry, but through counseling, is that there's really one relationship in this entire world that really exposes the problems of one's heart. There's really one relationship that does it. And there's one relationship and in, in situation that peels back the layers of selfishness and peels back the pride and the arrogance that we have in our hearts. And in, in, from what I have seen, that relationship is marriage. Would you guys agree with me? This morning, relationship, that one relationship is marriage. And in marriages, we have all sorts of disagreements and criticisms and problems. Why? Well, when you put two people together in a relationship who have never experienced bending to the wants and the desires of another person, problems arise. Why? Well, because when we're children and, and teenagers and even sometimes young adults, we have other people that look after us. We have our parents or our grandparents that take care of us and often meet our needs and, and a lot of times meet our wants. But then all of the sudden, that's gone. And you have to figure out how to get along with another person on an equal footing. Someone who has their own wants. Someone who has their own desires. And it can be chaos at times. Would you agree with me this morning? It can be chaos. Now, marriage can also be a beautiful picture to see the riches of God's glory displayed in the relationships around you as you see a couple sacrificially loving each other and humbling themselves like Jesus. Now, today's passage does not directly speak to marriages. However, it talks about relationships. James is going to talk to us about why we have disagreements why, uh, why those disagreements come from what is inside of our hearts. He's going to be talking to us about a whole slew of things this morning. And with that being said, let's look at James chapter 4. Verse number 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What a great way to start a chapter of the Bible, isn't it? How about we ask a question about what causes disagreements amongst people? And he says, is it not that your passions are at war within you? So he asks the question, he answers the question. And then he goes on to say, you desire and you do not have, and so you murder. That's a scary thought. You covet and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you asked wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he goes, you adulterous people, in verse number four. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says. Now look at the tone. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And what does James says? He says in verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have a portion of scripture here that um, is going to challenge us where we may find ourselves today. It's going to ask serious questions about how we respond in relationships instead of react to the situations in them. And so, Lord, I ask that you would illuminate the areas of growth and change in our lives that need to be chiseled out of us. I ask for your word to go forth and that it would penetrate our hearts and that we would be convicted and unsettled this morning that we need to grow in our relationship with you. And so, Lord, I ask you that through this process that you would, would receive the glory and the praise uh, for what you do in our lives and for the truth that you give. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. You see here, James starts out this chapter using some very intense language, describing the disagreements and the problems that you see in, in the world that have arisen. Now, mind you, we must remember He's speaking to believers in the church. He's speaking to believers in the church. And so problems are arising in the church. And we sit here and we're like, what? There's problems in the church? That's crazy. But this is some serious stuff James is talking about. Serious stuff. And I want for us to carefully consider this morning what James is talking about, lest we end up like the Christians that he is speaking to. This morning, I would love to be able to stand before you as your pastor and tell you that none of the problems that we are going to talk about today are problems in the church. I'd love to be able to sit here and do that. But if I were to say that, you all would be sitting out there thinking to yourself, well, our pastor is a liar. Because those problems do occur in the church. In fact, in fact, the saddest thing I will share with you this morning is that these issues are far too prevalent in the church today. Far too prevalent. And in church, if I could just be really blunt with you this morning, they've been prevalent in our church They've been prevalent right here in the well. And so I want to talk to us this morning about our desires. About our desires. The first thing I want us to see is that our desires may be pernicious. Now, real quick, before I go any further, those of you who um, uh, may not know what th that word means, you may not know what some of the words mean that I use today, 
I will oftentimes not only have acute attacks of alliteration uh, in my sermons, uh, but I, I use words that come to me that describe what I'm attempting to do, but it forces you to go and look it up. I'm, I'm helping you to grow. So just next time someone wants to come and just say, hey, what does that word mean? I'm going to say, hey, go to your dictionary. In verse number one and part of verse number two, James describes how we ruthlessly fight to avenge our own passions. Now notice, James did not start out this section like he often does by saying, my brothers or a servant of Jesus Christ. And in fact, he comes out of the gate swinging his fists. At the, at the Christians in the church. And again, he asks a question and then provides his own answer. And James is getting pretty good at that, isn't he? We've seen, we're only, we're only three chapters completed. And James oftentimes asks a question and answers his own question. James is saying that the source of our fights is these passions that wage war with inside of us. And we want things because of our passions. And when we don't get them, we murder and we covet and we fight and we wage war. Look back at verse number one. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. If you think about this, this makes perfect sense, does it not, church? The reason that any one of us fights with another person is that they want what they want, and we want what we want, and we don't always get it. Would you agree with that? So what happens? What happens in those situations where they have wants and desires, and I have wants and desires, and we don't always get them? Well, we begin to duke it out, don't we? We have fighting in our marriages, fighting in our families, fighting with our coworkers, and sometimes it happens verbally. We say things so intensely that we're attacking the other person right where we know it will hurt. But what about when it happens physically? We've come to the point where we have physically begin to assault another individual. Well, what about passively? How many times in our lives have we been the passive one? Passive aggressive. Okay, you do whatever you want. Anyone ever have that? in a relationship before? You know, not only um, do I like to read, and not only do I love uh, science, but one of the things that I used to be extremely passionate about was history. I used to love watching documentaries and, and read books about not just the history of our nation, but the history of other nations. And one of the things that I have come to realize is there are so many wars that were started and furthered by selfish desires on one side or the other or on both. And the sinful passions that whirl within every single one of us begin to stir up these hostile tendencies which then come out of us. Do you guys remember back to chapter 1 of James? James 1.14, it's going to hit the screen for you. It says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil what? 
desire, his own evil desire. And so we have these desires within us which remain from our former life. And church, I just want to throw this out there. As a believer, those things that remain from our former life should at least be a former life. Meaning we shouldn't continue to live the way that we used to live once we have been saved by the grace of Christ. Amen, church? We often, though, will return to those same desires and those same passions of our former life. And when we do, what happens? Problems arise. They begin to come out of us. Now, by the way, it also causes problems in the church when we've never truly departed from our sinful life. That is, when we claim to be Christians, but we're not truly changed. When, when we profess Christ in word only, but not in our actions, James over and over and over speaks about this very thing and it says this can cause a huge problem in our lives, causes a huge problem in our churches. When you put humans in a room together for long enough time, just like in marriage, there's bound to be problems. It happens. And James spoke last week as we finished out our study on chapter 3, and he told us four elements that we see oftentimes in people. Do you guys remember them? He said bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, pridefulness, and deception that live within the body. And they, they come from, do you guys remember, earthly wisdom. And what happens when we follow earthly wisdom? James said it brings about disorder and every evil practice. Disorder and every evil practice. And this is the exact same thing that James is speaking again now directly to the church. You know, we, we have gone through and go through all sorts of craziness to get what we want. Would you agree with me on that? We then sometimes don't always get what we want. And when we don't, we're perplexed as to why God didn't allow us to have it. And so James comes to us and he says, well, you don't get what you want. Why? Well, because number two, our desires may be pretentious. Our desires may be pretentious. You know, look at the end of verse number two. He says, you do not have because you do not ask, but when you ask it, you do not receive because you asked wrongly to spend it on your passions, on your passions. James says, first of all, you don't ask. And then he continues as saying that when you do ask, you have asked for the wrong reasons. You've asked for the wrong reasons. And that's the kicker right there. Isn't it Christian? Isn't it church? Isn't it friend? That's the kicker. You have presented your desires as being the utmost importance above all other things. And so one of the potential problems that with, we see with our desires, church, is that they may be selfish. They may be selfish. We want what's going to help me, 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 me when we ask. We want things that we can spend on our own pleasures, and there is no end to the pleasures of mankind. There's no end onto how much stuff we actually need to fulfill those selfish desires. 
church, God doesn't take pleasure in giving us things when we're selfish. Amen? That's a hard, hard thought to chew on. God does not take pleasure in giving us things when we are selfish. But aren't we the same way with other humans? We see someone being selfish and then we don't want to give them whatever it is that, that they want. Like another adult, you see it in them or, or your child and so you don't want to do it. Or what if, what if you give somebody something and then they become selfish with the thing that you gave them? Don't you want to instantly just take it back from them? Like I need to teach, teach you a lesson. Like you can't be selfish with that. But sometimes, sometimes we receive good gifts and then we squander those good gifts. Church, if you walk away today with nothing else, I want you to write this down. God is not in the business of reinforcing our selfish desires. God is not in the business of reinforcing our selfish desires. You know, generally speaking, a reminder to us as a church that we need to examine ourselves when we pray and what is the focus on what is the focus on? We need to ask ourselves right now as a church, what motivates our asking of God in things? Are we led by the desire for, for the glory of God and the accomplishment of God's will to come forth? Or are we led by our own selfish desires when we pray? You know, God, God would not be a good father if he granted our selfish requests every single time that we came to him. And make no mistake, God is a good father. God wants to grant us gifts that bless us. He wants to grant us gifts that accomplishes his will. And church, he gives a lot of good gifts. Amen. But more than anything else, he gives us the gift of himself. We learn first that our dangers or that our desires can be dangerous as we fight for what we want. And then we learn that our desires may be selfish, which is why God doesn't grant us our requests. The third thing I want us to see here in this passage is that our desires may be profane. I want you to look back with me at verse number four. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is getting kind of rough with his readers because this is a huge deal. He called them adulterous people. Now, of course, church, I want to explain for just a moment what adultery is in this sense. Because our, our perception oftentimes is that one spouse had an affair with another spouse. And that's the only perception or a definition of adultery that we see. Now here, adultery is the rejection of the one that you're supposed to love most for another lover. But it does not always necessarily mean the rejection for sexual intimacy uh, of some sorts. And so where's the adultery here? So James says, well, when you seek to be friends with the world, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting God. And James is saying it is hostility towards God when you do so. And then he goes to further say that if you want to be a friend of the world, you've become an enemy of God. Church, that's a scary thought. 
if I love the things of the world, I've become an enemy of God. Do you know, the ways of God and the ways of the world are in opposition to one another. You cannot serve both. You cannot be friends with both. James is not pulling any punches here. He's trying to make it very clear to us to get off the fence, church. Stop having one foot in the things of Christ and one foot in the things of the world. Guess what? You're going to fail at what you're doing and you're not committed to the way God is asking you to live. He's saying, balcony, those of you online, he's saying, church, get off the fence. The word of God tells us that we cannot be faithful to both. We can be faithful to one or the other. And God is saying, I want you to desire me and my will and my ways above everything else, both as an individual, but also as a church. As a church united in the same goals of ministry. And that is what, church? To connect people to God in everyday moments of life by how we've learned the Bible and we've lived out those biblical truths. That's why our vision and mission is exactly what it is because we're called to be disciple makers. But I want you to look back with me now at verse number five. Verse number five. He says, Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? Now, I want to let you in on a little bit secret here, uh, a little secret here in this verse. Most scholars agree that this is one of the most challenging verses to interpret in the entire book of James. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit has a jealous yearning for our friendship with God. Meaning that the Spirit inside of us will convict the Christian who lives in compromise. He went so far as to speak to them as adulterers or adulteresses and then adopting a very gentle approach. He pleads with the church. He gets down on their level and he says, Church, you're grieving the Holy Spirit who has come to dwell within He yearns with a jealous envy to possess your entire nature for himself. Now, unfortunately, the term jealous here has been abused by our culture to show that there's some aspect of God's character that that brings about sinfulness, I want you to know that that's an absolute downright lie. The word jealous here is often skewed from our human perspective because we are sinful. We do know that God said for us as humans not to covet what somebody else had in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus when he gave the Ten Commandments. But the jealousy in which is spoken about here in the text, all that James is doing is agreeing with multiple Old Testament portions of Scripture that say that God is a jealous God, meaning he doesn't want something else to have your love first, that he wants your love. Why? Not only is he your creator, but he's also your savior, church. 
He's also your savior. The idea is that God loves men with such a passion that he cannot bear another love within the heart of that man, woman, teenager, or child. I want you to think about it like this. Think of the inner pain and the inner torture inside the person who has been betrayed by an unfaithful spouse. Think about that. You have to reckon with the truth that I am faithful even when they are unfaithful. And that's what the Spirit of God is saying here in regards to our world-loving hearts. God has reckoned with the truth that I remain faithful even when my people are not. And so what, what do we do? What do we do with our pernicious and pretentious and profane desires? Well, church, our desires must be principled. The last thing I want us to see is that our desires must be principled. Turn your attention back with me to verse number six. But after James says all of the things... He says, but he gives more grace. Amen, church? How much grace, don't answer out loud, but how much grace has God given you in your life? He gives more grace. Therefore, says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do you know the same spirit that's in us that convicts us of our compromise also grants us the grace to serve God as we should and that's a wonderful statement, but he gives more grace. And it stands in strong contrast to the previous words in which James spoke. Church, I want you to look up here for just a moment. Note the contrast. Note it always. Observe in Scripture how weak we are, but how strong God is. Observe in Scripture how proud we are and yet how infallible God is. Observe in Scripture how changing we are and yet how immutable, unchanging God is. Note how provoking we can be and yet how forgiving He always is. Observe, church, as you read scripture, how in us there is only ill, but in God and through God there is good. And when you see those things, you begin to see a rich contrast in scripture between us and God and what it looks like apart from him. Do you know, James reminds us that this grace only comes to the humble to the humble. 
As we study out scripture, we begin to see that grace and pride are eternal enemies in scripture. Enemies. And pride demands that God bless us in light of our merits, whether real or imagined. But grace will not even deal with me on the basis of anything that's in me, good or bad. It only comes on the basis of who God is. It isn't as if each one of us in our humility earns the grace of God. It's that humility puts us in a position to receive the grace of God. You know, in light of of the grace that we see in Scripture, the grace that is offered to the humble, do you know there's only one thing that we can do? And that's submit to God. Submit to God. It means to order ourselves under God, to surrender to Him as a conquering King and start receiving the benefits of His reign in our life. Church, I've, I've read so many books and I've, I've counseled so many people and saw so many problems and the only way that I have come to find out to solve the problem of carnality and the strife that it causes is when we resist the devil. That's it. When we resist the devil, it means to stand against demonic deceptions and the efforts to imitate that which is holy. That's what that means. As we resist the devil... James promises us something through God. We are promised that he will flee. He will flee when we resist him. Now I want you to know, church, that word resist comes from the two Greek words meaning stand and against. Stand and against. And so James is telling us to stand against the devil, to stand against him. And now, church, I need you to understand something because all have a misunderstanding of what it means to stand against. First of all, nowhere in Scripture are we told directly to address Satan himself. In fact, that is a pagan practice that was started in the early church. Nowhere. In fact, when you study Scripture where Satan is involved in any type of combat against anybody in Scripture, the person always speaks the Lord. The Lord does this to you, not me. I have no strength here. And so, first of all, I want you to know that Satan can be set running and the demonic presence can be set running by the lowliest of believers who come in the authority of what Christ did on the cross. Amen. Okay, maybe we need to, we need to take that back a little bit. Satan can be set running by the resistance of even the lowliest of believers when they come in the authority of what Christ did on the cross. Amen, church. Do you know there was a famous Christian writer by the name of Hermas that said that the devil can wrestle against the Christian, but he can never pin him. He can wrestle against the Christian, but he could never pin him. But church, there's something more here than just the resisting of the devil. James said that's not enough. He didn't didn't say once you resist the devil, everything's going to be puppies and candy canes. He said, draw near to God. It was an invitation. An invitation and a promise. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. And what is the promise? God will draw near to you. God will draw near to you is the promise that comes with that. 
And so it's an invitation. It's no good for the Christian to submit to God's authority and resist the devil if he fails to draw near to God. It's no good. We have it as a promise that God will draw near to us as we draw near to him. And as we draw near to God, what happens, church? James says he will convict us of sin. He will convict us of sin. And as we come as sinners before a holy God, we appropriately humble ourselves before him. And what happens, church? He lifts us up. He lifts us up. Why? Because God resisted the proud, but he gave grace to the humble. The unmerited favor of God always lifts up. Always. Church, the bottom line here today is that we must desire God and his ways more than anything else. We must seek him. We must seek his ways and we must seek humility. And so you may be sitting in here this morning like, Pastor, what do I do? Right, that's great. These are my desires and they sound really awful. And my desires are supposed to be principled. They're supposed to be set on that which is true and narrow. And so where do I start this morning? What's my first step? Well, church, I want to give you three things that I'm going to challenge you to do this week. Three things. The first one is examine your motives as an individual. Examine your motives. We're going to be having communion here in just a few weeks. And one of the things that Paul told the church before communion was let every man examine himself. Let every man examine himself. That doesn't mean that we don't examine ourselves come communion, but what I'm saying is this week I want you to examine, examine yourself. I want you to ask yourself this question, what am I trying to gain from every interaction? What am I trying to gain? What is my end goal in every interaction that I have? Because if I'm trying to meet my own desires with the things of this world, it will all not only make our life harder for others, you make life harder for yourself as well. As we seek worldly desires for our own pleasure, it will get us nothing that has worth true value in the very end. And it creates a lot of chaos along the way. So examine your motives. What am I trying to accomplish? The second thing is I want us to examine our motives as as a church. As a church. What motivates us, church? That's what I want you to ask and answer. What motivates us? You know, Satan, there have been a lot of things, and and I'm not going to get into all the details but church, I want, I want you to know there have been a lot of things that have been going on behind the scenes that many, if not a great majority of you, have no idea. 
There have been a lot of chaos that has been going outside of the four walls of these church with things that have been said about our church family, about me as the pastor here, about, about all sorts of different things. And church, I, I want you to know what I communicated to um, our, our board this last Thursday at our meeting and what I want to communicate right now as a church. Satan would love nothing more for us to be focused on anything than actually being the church that we were called to be by God. Satan wants nothing more than to pull us away from what God has placed before us, the mission and the vision of the church. Satan wants nothing more than for us to take our eyes off the direction in which we're being guided and the outreaching into the community and the changes with the building. You know the moment that we launched the all-in? It was like chaos ensued Monday morning in the office. Ceilings collapsed in. Water damaged the carpet. And I'm sitting here like, what in the world is going on, God? And I'm like, we know this is of you. And then it hit me. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, Josh. Resist the devil. Listen, I wanted nothing more. And I, listen, I love my wife to death. And my wife takes so much time out of her day to come here and help me in the office more than probably anybody imagines. And, and I am so forever grateful and thankful that not only did I get a good one, but God blessed me uh, with, with her. I wanted nothing more that day as the ceilings were caving in and water was pouring all over than to just share out loud my frustrations with my wife. And she had no idea the level of frustration that I had in that moment. And I wanted to just scream at my wife for no good reason. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit's like, restrain yourself, pastor. Tone it down. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Church, there are a lot of things that may happen in our lives. People are going to hurt you. People are going to say things that offend you. Even I, as your pastor, will place myself in that category. I have probably said or done something to at least a handful of you here in this church that I have offended in some way, shape, or form. That doesn't make me the worst person in the world, but I'm, I'm a sinner just as much as you guys are out there. But something is going to occur in your life that Satan will attempt to use to distract you from the life that God has called you to live. And we must resist the devil. And so church, what motivates us to get up every day and live as a disciple? What motivates us to come to church on Sunday? And is it just because there's a coffee machine downstairs? Is it just because you're going to see your, your best friend or your neighbor or your co? Is that it? Is that, is that what motivates us to get up and come in and worship God? Balcony, what motivates you to come to church? What motivates you to get behind the, the mission? What motivates you to give to the mission? Is it because I want my name to go out there that I give the biggest amount of money every month? 
Or is my motivation Christ himself? Is my motivation the, not only the creator of the universe, but my savior and my king? Is that my motivation? So church, not only examine ourselves as individuals and examine uh, our motives at a, as a church, but we must humbly seek the ways of God. We must humbly seek the ways of God. And when I say we must humbly seek the ways of God, that means that we fight with every ounce in us for humility. We fight for the ways of God, and we do so through attitude. We do so through prayer. We do so through asking God to change the taste buds of our heart. The taste buds. A good friend of mine who is a pastor used to say, what are you putting in the crock pot of your life? What are you putting in? Are you putting in stinky, rotten, smelly meat? Are you putting in something that's beautiful? There's nothing more than smelling food. Like this is so warming to my soul. I love to eat. Anybody else out there love to eat, right? There's nothing uh, more amazing than walking into my home when my wife has something cooking in the pressure cooker or cooking in the crock pot and has been cooking all day long, right? And you, inst- you it, sm- like it smells so good, your mouth starts to water, you can't wait to sit down. And it's those moments uh, of time, right? So what are we putting in the crock pot of our life? Are we putting in something that the aroma is so good to the nostrils of God? Or is it something that stinks? Something that smells. Because church, there is nothing worse than smelling some food that's been burnt or rotten or or something's just wrong. It's just gross. But as we sit here this morning, I can't help but think that something that may be way worse than the feeling that we get when our needs aren't met The thing that, in my opinion, is way worse is when we're satisfied by something less than what we really need. Church, our desire must be for Jesus. God changes your desire to what they really should be, and then he meets those desires. And so, church is the greatest treasure that we sought after last week was the greatest treasure, the treasure of Christ himself.